Welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today, we're going to break down the third episode of the animated Star Trek parody series, Lower Decks. For this episode, we'll summarize the plot and then discuss our impressions of the show. We'll end our podcast with the most recent Star Trek news. But before we begin, please remember our analysis contains spoilers. So if you haven't watched the episode yet, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. However, rest assured, we will not divulge any of the mini jokes or Star Trek reference gags in the episode. So those moments will be fresh for you when you do get a chance to see it for yourself. Now, Gary, let's start with the synopsis. As with the first two episodes, Temporal Edict begins with a cold open in which the crew is subjected to the lame entertainment, first by Boimler on his violin, and then Mariner and Tindy, who play hard rock music so loud that it can be heard by a nearby Klingon cruiser through the vacuum of space. And um, you can't hear anything in a vacuum right? that's right that's the, the joke travel. that's the joke <laughs> so however unlike previous episodes boimler and mariner are not paired up in the main plot which places as much emphasis on the bridge officers as it does the lower deck characters. Captain Freeman is disappointed when she loses the chance to broker a Federation peace negotiation on Cardassia Prime. Instead, her orders are changed to head to Gelric 5 to provide diplomatic gifts to the inhabitants of the planet. After learning from Boimler that the crew pads the estimate time to take it any to complete any task. Captain Freeman orders all staff to follow strict time parameters for each assignment. After a week of trying to follow these new procedures, the ship's operations degenerate into chaos as the crew is unable to keep up with the rigorous time restrictions. The only exception to this is Boimler, who revels in the adherence to rules. He happily completes his tasks well within the time guidelines and eagerly looks to take on more assignments. Despite the turmoil on the ship, the Cerritos reaches Gelrag 5, where Ensign Mariner accompanies Commander Jack Ransom and the away team to deliver a symbolic crystal uh, to the spear-carrying inhabitants of the planet. However, when the case is opened that supposedly was supposed to contain the crystal, a log, a wooden log, is discovered instead which is a symbol of the Gelrakian's mortal enemy. Although, Starf although a Starfleet officer tries to explain he mistakenly brought the wrong box, he is speared in the shoulder by one of the Gelrakians. The away team is captured and told the slim chance that they have for survival is to fight and beat their best fighter a humongous Gilrakian called Vendor. 
Ransom and Mariner fight over who should fight Vendor. To settle the matter, Ransom disables Mariner by stabbing her in the foot with the sword. Ransom then strips his shirt off, revealing his broad, muscular chest. He defeats Vendor without a, a weapon, using just his bare hands clasped together in, a, in, in the best form of, of Kirk Fu and striking the Galrakian with his clasped hands. The crew is set free and are able to return to the ship. So back on the ship, the Galrakians have invaded the Cerritos. There they take advantage of the chaos to disable the crew and write graffiti inside the ship as well as outside on the saucer section. Boimler finds the captain and convinces her the only way to overcome the intruders is to relax the restrictions on the crew and allow them to use their wits to rid themselves of the invaders by any means necessary. The solution works, and a grateful Captain Freeman codifies Boimler's advice by giving it a name, the Boimler Effect. Boimler later laments how he has a rule named after him about not following the rules as he likes. But Rutherford and Tindy simply assure him that the new rules are always being made and that in time, no one will remember the Boimler effect. And in the epilogue, far in, in, into the future, a school teacher is teaching her class about how, about how important the Boimler effect is and how it was named after Brad Boimler, known as the laziest, most counter-cutting officer in Starfleet history. <laughs> the teacher then starts teaching them about perhaps the most important figure in Starfleet history, Miles O'Brien. <laughs> so... So here's our analysis of the episode. We continue to enjoy the series, which has not failed to bring laughs, as well as a number of Easter eggs faithfully tucked away throughout the episode. Now for the Easter eggs, we'll conclude with a few sources for that discussion in the podcast notes, and we'll also mention a couple of them. We'll now return our attention to an analysis of the characters. First, let's look at Ensign Boimler. So unlike the previous two episodes, Boimler in this episode proved himself to be a level-headed and resourceful officer. Although he personally strives, uh, or thrives, I should say, among the confines of rules and regulations, he recognized working under such restrictions was not the optimum way to elicit the best work for most of the crew members. His counsel to the captain came without any encouragement from Mariner, his self-appointed mentor, who was facing a different type of challenge on Gelrek 5. It will be interesting to see if the self-confidence he gained from this incident will carry over into future episodes. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how this lays out. Because they are building on each one of these characters yes. as they go forward. Okay, so next we want to talk about um, Ensign Mariner and Commander Ransom. Or as I like to say, um, what would happen if Kirk and Riker had a baby? <laughs> uh, 
Okay. For this episode, Mariner found herself teamed on on an assignment with Commander Jack Ransom, who had been given only a few minutes of screen time in the previous two episodes. A cross between Captain Kirk from the original series and Commander Riker from Next Generation, initially Ransom appears to be as clueless as Boimler had been in the previous episodes as he attempts to reason with the Galrakians ends in futility. Mm -hmm. So, in contrast, Mariner proved herself to be competent and a brave fighter who saved a fellow crew member after he was felled by a spear. She defied Ransom's order not to roll up her sleeves and chastised him for continuing to use diplomacy as a solution to their predicament. However, her estimation of Ransom changed after he disabled her <laughs> to fight Vendor. In fact, you know, he stabs her right in the right, foot. Right, right. And that's what you usually do. Somebody stabs you in the foot, you start looking at them and they're kind of, a, they're hot and sexy. Too. Uh, yeah. Well, hot and sexy after he tears open his shirt. Yes. So although she attempted to resist, she found herself attracted to the superior officer after he bared his chest and fought Vendor with clasped hands, as Gary said, similar to the style used by Kirk. Now, one wonders why such a fighting technique would have been effective. Really? However, really? Yeah, really? It's like so many other supposed attributes of Kurt, it's best not to ponder on that too long. That's true. That's true. After Ransom de- defeats Vendor, he sweeps Mariner up in his arms and returns to the ship where she can receive medical attention. There, we learn the sexual tension between Mariner that she feels towards Ransom is mutual. Mm-hmm. However, the two do not act on it because Ransom immediately orders security to take her to the brig for insubordination. Specifically, she he told her to roll down her sleeves yep. and she refused to do so. That's right. And so that's the insubordination that she has done. She didn't follow his, his commands. So sure, the relationship is problematic considering the differences in race, yet Mariner is definitely a strong woman who would not hesitate to let Ransom know if his advances were not welcome. So we're not worried about her being taken advantage of. We think that this is going to be interesting to see how this relationship um, plans out over the course of the season. Yeah, yeah. It really will be interesting. Oh, yeah. And, and especially because... He's the first officer to her mother. Right. And so how is she going to feel exactly. about this? So. And, and they're both A-type personalities. Yes, yes, definitely. So now we want to talk about Captain Freeman, uh, who, by the way, is voiced by uh, Don Lewis. Right. Okay. So for uh, the first... For the first episode since the show started, we get to see how the second class status of the Cerritos is impacting Captain Freeman and her self-respect. Captain Freeman argues with a Starfleet Admiral who informs her that their current mission to Cardassia Prime has been scrapped, causing the peace negotiation to be moved to Vulcan. The Admiral instead orders them to deliver some diplomatic trinkets. The transmission ends and Freeman angrily vents how she spent weeks preparing for this mission. But Freeman believes Starfleet doesn't take them seriously. 
and that the Cerritos doesn't do enough to get their respect. She believes the crew needs to prove they do not slack on the job. Mm -hmm. Oh, so her anger actually is justified because Starfleet is disrespectful of Cerritos. I mean, that's part of the humor of the show. And I know this is an animated uh, comedy, but that aspect of the inner workings of the ship and its standing in Starfleet is what would irk any respectable commanding officer. So Freeman's reactions, although kind of exaggerated, are right in line to how she should feel. Right, exactly. It's interesting that Boimler influences Freeman both in the execution of her efficiency mandate and when she lifts it. Um, she realizes that it would it becomes counterproductive to efficiency or even defending the ship because basically when the Galrakians come on board, they can't really repel them because they're too busy trying to accomplish all these tasks in the time that they're allotted. Yeah. Yeah, if she really didn't have any self-respect, then she would just accept those assignments and say, hey, I'm never in danger. I can just, you know... Uh, you know, just get by. Right. And it really shows that she does believe in uh, in Starfleet and what she's doing. And, and again, she wants to be proud of what they're doing. Yeah, and, and she's, she presents herself as a competent leader. So the problem is is that it's that she's just considered us working on a second-class uh, starship. That's right. That's right. So... We just have to mention again, it's the same thing we've been saying for the last couple of weeks, uh, about talking about Instance Tindy and Rutherford. So there's not much to say here. Once again, these two are relegated to playing supporting characters who we've yet to have a good chance to get to know them, as well as Boimler and Mariner. We wonder if that will change so they will finally be the primary focus, at least for one of these episodes. Yeah, I mean, we now know much more about those two. And in fact, yep. I can dare say we, we know a bit more about Freeman, Ran Freeman, Freeman and, and Ransom. Who are not even supposed to be the focus right, of right, the right, show. Right, 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 right. Than we do about Rutherford and Tindy, which is kind of interesting, considering, <laughs> like you said, the, the, the four instances were supposed to be the focus of the show. So we'll see how this pans out. Yeah. So, so why don't you talk about a couple of Easter eggs? Yeah, this show didn't have a lot. In fact, it was kind of uh, devoid of them for the most part. You know, nothing in the background, especially. The, the, the context of the, the away team going down to a planet where the inhabitants defended themselves with spears was, was reminiscent of the original series and so many of the planets that they went to. But um, aside from that, the other thing that I was able to find out is there's a passage where Commander Ransom talks about several alien hostiles that he's come across, and they sound amazingly familiar. You know, he, he recalls having faced down a horned gorilla. Well, that's a reference to the Magato, who's in the original series episode, A Private Little War. He talks about a sentient tar, and we know that that's Armus, the from TNG Skin of Evil, the creature that kills um, Tasha Yar. 
And then the uh, the last thing he talks about is a mind-altering spore. Well, we know those are the pod plants from the original series episode, This Side of Paradise, when, when Spock, who meets a former uh, confidant, a woman who fell in love with him, now he actually, because of the spores, he's able to return her affections, which they got to deal with. So also in the in the epilogue, as I mentioned before, the far in the future scene, we see when the teacher is teaching the class about Boimler, she, there is a, a holographic statue that comes, which kind of shows you the recognition he's received for the Boimler effect. And in the statue, it's included a great bird of galaxy that's sitting on his forearm. Well, all fans would know that that's a nod to the nickname given to Gene Rottenberry by associate producer Robert Justman from the original series. He was called the Great Bird of the Galaxy. And in fact, there's that phrase is heard in the original series episode, The Man Trap, when Yeoman Ran brings some food to uh, Lieutenant Sulu in his room. And in appreciation for her bringing him his dinner, he says to her, may the great bird of the galaxy bless your planet. Oh, okay. Okay. So... So, so I just nerded out there for a moment. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> okay. So we do have one bit of Star Trek news this time. And that is... It's more of a recommendation than news. Right, right. It's a recommendation. So... Um, and this has to do with the greatest Star Trek captain. We highly recommend Trek Culture's recent YouTube video, 10 Reasons Benjamin Sisko is Star Trek's greatest uh, ever captain. We wholeheartedly agree with each justification given, especially the fact that Sisko is the most well-rounded character of all the Star Trek captains, who besides his command's duties, had many other interests in which he excelled. He had his flaws as well as his virtues, but probably the most enduring quality was his role as a loving, nurturing father, a role not often depicted in media even today. So, and that is because he, you know, for those who don't know, he is a black man. Right. So it's a black man shown you know caring for his son real really yeah yep yep so we strongly encourage you to watch the seven year uh series which seems as fresh today and as relevant today as when it first aired 27 years ago yeah i i know that there seems to be bubbling now some greater interest in ds9 than i have ever felt in the fandom prior to this, which is a good thing because that's, uh, when people look at it and they look at it in an impartial way, they will, they will, they usually come around to understanding that it is one of the strongest, if not the strongest Star right. Trek series totally when you look at the show. Yeah, when you look at the whole canon of, of work right, and you compare it to others, it's it probably is the best. As, as much as I enjoy Next generation. Yeah. The first couple of seasons of the Next Generation are hard to get through. There yes. are there are yes. some good episodes, but the vast majority are not very strong. That's right. Likewise, in the last couple of seasons of like season six and season seven, specifically season seven, 
there's a lot of coasting that's going on right. in that show. The, the, the writing isn't as sharp as it is between episodes. Not in every episode. No, so but, uh, but if you look at the quality of the writing between season three and seasons five, those those three seasons are the strongest of right. of Deep Space Nine. I mean, of Next Generation. Yeah, the only storyline that holds up to the end is the Worf storyline. That one's Are you talking strong. about Next Generation? Are you talking about Next Generation? I'm talking about Next Generation. If you oh. really look at yeah, yeah, you look at I'm... seasons three through five. Yeah, that's what I'm. Those are the about. strongest seasons I feel of Next Generation. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, so if but if you look at Deep Space Nine, if you haven't looked at it in a while, if you go back and check it out, I think you'll find that there is a greater level of consistency, and quite frankly. This is my personal opinion. The caliber of the writing is stronger because oh, yeah. the writing crew it's, really is more consistent. It is more consistent, and and the other thing is because they also examine clearly utilizing the acting ca- talent that they have. That's right. That's right. And and the backgrounds of those people yeah. of the people playing those parts. And it, anyway, I think that's one of the reasons why. Trek Culture, which is a British uh, uh, internet sh- uh, series. That's right. They do. A, they really do an examination of Star Trek and the Star Trek universe, but they do it as a love love from from the UK. Right. And they and they really do a good job. Yeah. yeah a lot like of their, overall, we we do enjoy their videos. They are very good. And and if you haven't thought about subscribing to them you should look at this and see if you like it and see if you might want to be inclined to look at some of their other works because right. i think i think they really do a very good analysis when they when they actually tackle certain topics yep. in the star trek lore so in closing we'll be back uh really soon uh with a review of episode four of the series but until that time like subscribe and follow star trek age of discovery on twitter on facebook and at our website star trek aod.net um, where we have um, additional articles on star trek canon interesting sidebar issues and topics also email the show at star trek aod at gmail.com but until then Live long and prosper.